Welcome to West Virginia Week, a regular podcast from West Virginia Public Broadcasting that looks back at the major stories of the week. I'm Eric Douglas. Our news coverage was dominated by stories from West Virginia's legislative interim meetings at the beginning of the week and the WVU Board of Governors at the end. We also remembered where we were and how it felt on the anniversary of the 9-11 attacks. There were a lot of other stories as well, including two more installments in our Help Wanted series about workforce issues in the state. We'll jump right into it with a couple short news stories. The West Virginia University Board of Governors has voted to eliminate the World Languages Department, as well as several faculty positions and majors. Liz McCormick has more. Following a presentation that outlined the financial challenges and enrollment decline that led to proposed cuts at WVU, students began chanting loudly and emotionally as board members started to vote. After several minutes, students exited the room, continuing to chant as board member Tanya Willis-Miller called for order. No student was asked to leave, and I will not let that misinformation be spread. This is just a snapshot into the weeks of contention at West Virginia University. The Board of Governors voted Friday to eliminate 28 academic programs and more than 140 faculty positions. The decision affects more than 300 students. The vote shutters the World Languages Department except for electives in Spanish and Chinese. The cuts affect programs in education, law and mathematics, as well as the sciences and medicine. School officials say students displaced by the changes will be provided other opportunities to meet their academic goals. For West Virginia Public Broadcasting, I'm Liz McCormick. The West Virginia Public Service Commission has approved a partial rate increase for Appalachian Power customers. Curtis Tate has the story. On Wednesday, the PSC approved nearly $89 million in fuel costs for Appalachian Power and Wheeling Power to be paid for by electricity users. The companies had sought to recover $642 million. The commission deferred a decision on the remaining balance. The under-recovery of fuel costs goes back to 2021 when electricity demand surged following the COVID-19 lockdowns. The price of coal and natural gas spiked, and Appalachian Power found itself running low on coal supplies at its three West Virginia power plants. The full $642 million would have cost the average residential user almost $20 a month. The $89 million will increase the monthly bills by closer to $5. The PSC held multiple days of hearings in Charleston last week on the matter, in addition to four public comment hearings statewide over the summer. For West Virginia Public Broadcasting, I'm Curtis Tate in Charleston. A presentation on first responders' mental health issues had lawmakers reacting to a crisis. Randy Yowie has the story. Firefighters are more likely to take their own life than to die in the line of duty. First responder PTSD rates are triple the general population. Those are just two of the many devastating statistics House Education Committee Chief Counsel Melissa White laid out for the Joint Committee on Volunteer Fire Departments and Emergency Medical Services. White said there is a critical lack of training, support, and education regarding first responders coping with overwhelming stress and trauma. She said the long-standing mentality of what many have termed suck it up is still pervasive throughout the state and country. Even when first responders do realize they need help and do have support accessible, they are discouraged from using it or even told what to say. State EMS Director Jody Ratliff says a network of first responder critical debriefing teams will soon be deployed. For West Virginia Public Broadcasting, I'm Randy Yowie in Charleston. And now we'd like to highlight a few of the feature stories we shared this week. West Virginia is part of a so-called abortion desert, but a clinic with ties to the Mountain State is opening just over the border. Emily Rice has more. 
The Women's Health Center of Maryland in Cumberland will see its first patients on September 13th to provide abortion services to patients across central Appalachia. Originally, the clinic was set to open this summer, but some contractor timelines set the renovation back. Katie Quinones is the executive director of the Charleston-based Women's Health Center of West Virginia. She will serve as executive director of the new Maryland clinic. Pretty standard for renovations. They typically always take longer than you expect. Um, and as abortion providers, we often do what feels like impossible, so we can become pretty ambitious, and uh, <laughs> we might have set a, an, an early goal. By opening in Maryland, the clinic will be able to employ physicians who are licensed in states with less regulation, easing access to abortion services. We do know that there are a large number of doctors in Maryland um, and regionally that are interested in providing abortion care in the state of Maryland just because where Women's Health Center of Maryland is opening is going to be such a key regional access point for abortion care. Kenyonas said the clinic will be a key regional access point for people seeking an abortion near West Virginia and other states that have passed abortion bans. Even in the state of Maryland, only two abortion providers operate, and they only offer first trimester abortions and medication abortion. So again, that limits access to for folks who need procedural abortion and folks who need abortion into the second trimester. Quinones said that while speaking with other clinics in the planning process of Women's Health Center of Maryland, she learned clinics in Pittsburgh, another option for West Virginia patients, were scheduling out six weeks ahead of time. It's really our sincere hope that Women's Health Center of Maryland will be that regional access point for abortion care and hope to alleviate the intense demands that existing abortion providers that have been able to continue to provide that care in their states. The clinic will not only offer abortions, but comprehensive reproductive health care, like contraception, annual exams, breast and cervical cancer screenings, STI testing and treatment, pregnancy and parenting support, and gender-affirming hormone therapy. Women's Health Center of Maryland will be the westernmost abortion provider and gender-affirming hormone provider in the state of Maryland, and it will be the only nonprofit reproductive health care center in Mountain, Maryland. A bill passed during the 2023 legislative session outlaws West Virginians under 18 from being prescribed hormone therapy and fully reversible puberty blockers. It also bans minors from receiving gender-affirming surgery, something physicians say doesn't even happen in West Virginia. Under the law, which will take effect in January 2024, a patient can be prescribed puberty blockers and hormone therapy after receiving parental consent and a diagnosis of severe gender dysphoria from two clinicians, including a mental health provider or an adolescent medicine specialist. Even if the only service that Women's Health Center of West Virginia offered or that Women's Health Center of Maryland will offer was abortion care, that would still be valid and necessary because abortion is part of comprehensive reproductive health care that everyone should have access to. But the reality is that, much like many other independent clinics across the country that are providing abortion care, we are also providing other comprehensive reproductive health care. The Women's Health Center of West Virginia continues to provide cancer screenings, contraception, and HIV and STI testing, among other reproductive health care services. For Appalachia Health News, I'm Emily Rice in Charleston. Appalachia Health News is a project of West Virginia Public Broadcasting with support from Charleston Area Medical Center and Marshall Health. More questions are being raised about the role of surface mines and flash floods after widespread damage in eastern Kanawha County. 
Brianna Haney has the story. Anna Goodnight's yellow panel home sits along Little Creek Holler. Her home and all the other homes on this street are only accessible by a small bridge that crosses a trickling creek. On Monday, August 28th, she was standing along the roadside holding her son's hand, waiting to put him on the school bus. It was raining, and it had been raining on and off for a couple days. At 6.45 a.m., Anna looked up at the road and noticed the small creek, which is usually just above a trickle, appeared the slightest bit higher than normal. I looked up the road, I called her dad, I said, are you sure everything's still good? Yeah, sure. I said, are you sure, are you sure everything's gonna be okay? He said, yeah, it should be, everything's fine. A couple minutes later. I looked up the road, it literally looked like the dam opened and all this came just gushing down. Anna ran back down over the bridge with her son grabbed her younger child and their dogs and ran back over the bridge onto the road. We had a bridge with our driveway right here. And as soon as we got across it, it wiped the whole thing out. And when I got in the car to leave, you could see it follow us all the way down. The bridge that connects the road to their house was washed away. According to the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Association, West Virginia is historically one of the top states for rain, most notably in the mountains. But residents that live along Little Creek all said this flood was different. I have never witnessed anything like that. That's why when everybody keeps asking and um, a statement was made from somebody, this is when, when you get a, you know, an alert that you need to leave your home. Well, there was no alert. There was no warning. There was not a flood warning. There was nothing. A flood warning was issued by the National Weather Service at 7 a.m., 15 minutes after Goodnight said the flood started. Most residents said as quickly as the water rose, it went back down. And that's characteristic of a watershed area that has been impacted by surface mines, says Nicole Zeg, a professor of forest hydrology at WVU's Mountain Hydrology Laboratory. When we get into surface mine systems and when we get into urbanized systems, because of all the impervious surfaces and the lack of vegetation and lack of soils, we see a very flashy storm flow response where the stream rises very quickly, it peaks very quickly, and then it falls very quickly. And that shape of the hydrograph does say a lot about what's going on in that watershed. The areas that were flooded are checkered with surface mines, both active and reclaimed. Zeg says valley fills can help. The research that we've done on this has showed, um, at least for the uh, Coal River watershed in the southern coal fields in West Virginia, um, maximum flows um, have been uh, decreasing in that watershed, and it was our belief that that was associated with the valley fills. But Zeg says that it's hard to say if those valley fills help when it comes to torrential rainfall like the 11 inches of rain that Eastern Kanawha County saw in late August. It's important to emphasize that with the amount of rainfall that Eastern Kanawha County had, there would have been a flood regardless, says Zeg. You know, whether it's an old growth forest or a parking lot or a surface mine, when you drop eight to 10 inches over a couple of hours, um, there's gonna be a flood that comes off that landscape. And as temperatures rise due to climate change, the air holds more water making heavy rainfalls happen more often. So for every one degree temperature change in the atmosphere, one degree warming, the atmosphere can actually hold 4% more water. Um, but more telling is a recent study by Climate Central that actually showed for Huntington, West Virginia, um, 
hourly rainfall has increased by about 28% since the 1970s. And so in an hour, when it's raining, there's 28% more moisture in the air that's falling. And that could account for at least some of the relentless rain that fell on the watersheds of Fields, Little, and Slaughter Creek Sunday night through Monday morning. Just a few miles beyond those creeks, devastated by flash floods, near the headwaters of those creeks sits active coal mines. It's a relatively small creek, and yep, um, it has a surface mine um, upstream. And so, you know, I think it would be hard to exclude that surface mine playing a role in um, the stream flow that was experienced downstream. Um, I would expect that that surface mine played a role in stream flows downstream. Now, whether that was enough to create the floods that were experienced, um, hard to say, but I, I wouldn't be surprised. Downstream from that mine, in the Little Creek Holler, where Anna Goodnight lives with her family, the effort to clean up the destruction those raging waters left behind has began. The creek bed, the streets, everyone's yards, and most people's homes are filled with this deep, yellow, sandy, silty mud and lots of coal scattered around the area. Coal. There's coal. There's coal in my garage. And this community is searching for answers. How did this happen? Why was it so bad this time? Was it surface mining, climate change, timbering, a sediment pond, or an act of God? Not to say blame needs to be placed or whatnot, but I need a little peace of mind because had I not been off work Monday morning and been out here put my son on the bus, he would have been here alone putting himself on the bus and he would have been stuck. Community members and leaders are urging for an investigation into surface mines in and around eastern Kanawha County. The Kanawha County Commission says they are optimistic that there will be FEMA assistance. For West Virginia Public Broadcasting, I'm Brianna Heaney in Little Creek. West Virginians have struggled to find affordable housing for years. The pandemic made things worse as demand increased. A lack of available housing inventory or land on which to build is exacerbated by the shortage of laborers and skilled tradesmen to build the houses. Caroline McGregor continues our radio series, Help Wanted, Understanding West Virginia's Labor Force, with a look at how a shortage of workers is affecting the housing industry. Across West Virginia, a shortage of available housing is affecting a disproportionate number of lower-income families. During the pandemic, a surge in home sales left builders unprepared. The solution isn't as simple as building more houses or offering tax incentives for prospective builders. Ed Brady is the CEO of the Home Builders Institute, which provides on-the-job training for skilled workers. He says the imbalance of supply and demand has created the perfect storm. The, the need is at crisis levels. We don't have a skilled labor uh, to build the housing, the infrastructure that we need in this country. During the Great Recession, the residential construction industry lost an estimated one and a half million jobs. Thousands of home builders went out of business. The road to recovery has been a long one. With fewer workers, rising lumber costs, transportation issues, and a limited inventory of raw materials, last year it took an average of eight months to build a single-family home. That's the longest since the Census Bureau began collecting data in 1971. The Home Builders Institute actively recruits people in the skilled trades. They do this through on-the-job training and certification programs in local communities in West Virginia and across the country. 
Their partnership with the Home Depot Foundation helps provide these programs that began as an outreach to help transitioning military families. And that has expanded now. They're helping us get into high schools. Uh, They're helping us with organizations like 100 Black Men of America. They're helping us create academies throughout the country. Aaron Dickerson is the president of the Home Builders Association of West Virginia. He says the shortage is worse in the state's rural areas. The housing affordability and affordable housing kind of goes hand in hand. And and with that, um, the labor shortage of creating those homes, we're really trying to draw the manufacturing businesses into the state. Um, But the, the rural areas where the companies are trying to come to, it is difficult in finding the construction companies and the labor to provide the affordable housing for the individuals that are going to work on those projects and eventually uh, form the skilled labor for those uh, companies. One of the biggest problems facing the industry is an aging workforce. In 2022, nearly a quarter of skilled tradesmen were 55 or older. For every three tradesmen that retire, there's just one trained worker waiting to take their position. It's estimated the U.S. won't catch up with demand until 2050. By 2030, almost 80 million skilled tradesmen will have retired. Apprenticeships are increasing, but Dickerson says part of the problem is the stigma surrounding manual labor and the emphasis today to earn a college degree. Trying to get rid of that stigma of walking down the street and and parents saying, well, look at that street sweeper, you don't want to be that person, or look at that plumber, you don't want to do that. That stigma of getting your hands dirty isn't necessarily a bad thing. It's the, it's the old adage, uh, dirty hands, clean money type situation, that you can make a good living wage, not put yourself in a ton of debt. Dickerson said they have student chapters within the Home Builders Association of West Virginia through the Home Builders Institute. They also work closely with local tech schools, including one in Marion County and the Mid-Ohio Valley, to encourage more young people to enter the profession. Because uh, uh, those students coming out are, I mean, that's the next generation of our workforce. So, you know, the more we can be involved with them during the training program, you know, the more we can ensure that they're going to be trained in the way that, you know, we would like to hire somebody. Um, But there's also... um, nationally, like I said, the HBI student chapter programs in other states are quite large uh, to where you have national skills competitions, uh, the Job Corps through HBI. uh, They have a pre-apprenticeship certification program, a training program. He said national efforts are better funded, but they try to do as much as they can on a local level to make the profession more attractive. In the future, your skilled trades are going to be some of your higher paying jobs because less and less people want to do it. And that skill just isn't there like it was uh, handed down generation to generation in the past. The average salary for entry level sheet metal workers in West Virginia is $56,000. The hourly rate for the men or women who choose to become electricians is $27 an hour. Kent Pauley is the state representative to the National Association of Home Builders. As a seasoned tradesman and contractor, he says the good news is that today's skilled laborers are entering the profession at a time of increased job security and better work conditions. When I was coming up in the uh, early 70s, it was very difficult to make a good living. I mean, the pay scale, if I, I, I tell the story, if I got fired, there was five people behind me wanting that job. Well, that's not the case today. We have to pay a better wage. We have to do a better job in taking care of our employees. There's a much better uh, insight for job safety than what it used to be. The housing industry has historically relied on immigrants who make up 30% of all positions. 
This includes Hispanics and people from Eastern Europe trained in skills like carpentry, painting, drywall, tile installation and brick masonry. But with tougher immigration policies, this readily available workforce has shrunk. With an immigration policy that restricts the flow of skilled labor and those that are willing to do jobs that sometimes are hard to fill, it causes just another headwind to provide the skilled labor in order to build the housing we need in this country. Without a good immigration policy, which provides uh, legal, free-flowing skill to come into the country, we're going to continue to go in the wrong direction in providing that skilled labor. Brady says the industry needs to embrace change. We have a huge opportunity to diversify this industry. It's, it's traditionally been, um, frankly, white male. Uh, dominated, and uh, you add in the, the the immigrant population, we need to market to women, we need to market to people of color, and we need to diversify this industry in order to populate the skills that we need. According to the National Association of Home Builders, 723,000 more jobs per year are needed to keep up with demand. That translates to the need for builders to bring on 30 times more new hires than the current pace. Brady stressed the answer lies in opening the skilled trades to a broader and younger workforce. The reason that it's so important to get young people involved and introduce the industry is we've lost a generation or two of giving people the opportunity to explore the industry. Everybody had to go to four-year universities. A degree was a mandate out of the high school system, and that hasn't panned out to be all that productive. For West Virginia Public Broadcasting, I'm Caroline McGregor. In the About Us tab on the Workforce West Virginia website, it says, besides overseeing the state employment insurance program, the agency has a network of workforce development services to provide citizens and employers the opportunity to complete in today's global economy. As we continue our Help Wanted series, Randy Yoey spoke with Scott Adkins, Acting Commissioner of Workforce West Virginia, on the job-seeking services the agency provides and how they are working. You know, the state continues to go full steam ahead on economic development with a variety of businesses and industries and corporations coming to West Virginia. What are your departments and divisions in Workforce West Virginia doing to develop the workforce needed to fill those positions? Well, workforce, uh, uh, most folks think that we do just unemployment, but we have a huge component of the work and resources that we have working with employers. We help employers recruit uh, qualified applicants, uh, virtual job fairs, on-site job fairs. We do upskilling, retraining. We work with the uh, Higher Education Policy Commission, uh, DHHR, a bunch of different uh, partners at the state level to make sure we're finding the right people for the right job. How do you gauge success there? Well, jobs. It's all about jobs. It's a, at the end of the day, do we take somebody who is unemployed or underemployed, put them in a position that they succeed in, but also at the same time meeting whatever void or need that employer has, which is critical. I tell folks all the time at Workforce, the employer is our customer. And, and so working from that angle, we're able to help employers locate qualified workers daily. And, and it covers a variety of skill sets. I know that. It does. I mean, if you, if you think about the economy in West Virginia, it's, it's very diversified. A lot of folks think that we just do coal. Well, 40 years ago, we just did coal. Not today. It's very diversified. I hear the term child care tossed about when it comes to being able to keep uh, and maintain and recruit and retain a workforce. How important right now in 2023 is that element 
to be incorporated maybe from the state end. Well, yeah, it's, it's child care, it's transportation. And one of the things that we're doing at Workforce right now, is, as Secretary Bailey says, we try to expand opportunities in child care, is working with our federal partners to create an apprenticeship, a sort of learn and earn for folks who are interested in getting into child care services. That's the orientation for your your workers there, for the people that are helping these people get jobs. Uh, morph a bit, change a bit, according to what's going on with the economy and, and the state. It, it does. We have job coaches that have to be familiar, not just with the careers that are, that are coming in, but as you can imagine, they vary from region to region. So what we're recruiting for or helping to, to locate employees in the eastern panhandle is going to be a lot different than if we're in Logan County, for example, looking for the same thing. Now, Tourism Secretary Ruby has plans to fill an expected 20,000 new hospitality jobs over the next three years. She says they're going to come in in force. How will Workforce West Virginia and Commerce help fill those positions? One thing that we, we attempt to do at Workforce is to create career opportunities. And so if you look at the labor force participation rate in West Virginia, that 16 to 24, we sort of lag behind the national average. And so if we can work with that group of, of our population to show them that, hey, there's a, there's a career opportunity. It's not just a job. And so change that paradigm and that way of thinking for those 18 to 24, 16 to 24-year folks looking at hospitality and tourism as a career opportunity. It seems like there's a great team effort amongst all the agencies and organizations within the state to make sure that you can get the best of what each one has in order to get a better workforce. Am I right? Yeah, I mean, I mentioned to you earlier, Randy, that we do have more people working today. And I, and I think that goes back to the concerted effort by the governor's office to, to really drive home what Secretary Bailey says, is that every, every system or service in the state should be seamless. Should be one point of entry, whether you're an employer or somebody seeking a service or a job seeker. And so there's a big push, as, as you mentioned earlier, to get all these agencies working together. We're not siloed anymore. Historically, we sent you from shop to shop to shop. We don't do that anymore. We try to create sort of a self-service, one-stop operation across all state agencies, including uh, folks at economic development. That was Scott Adkins, Acting Commissioner of Workforce West Virginia, speaking with Randy Yowie on his agency's job-seeking services. Monday was the 22nd anniversary of the terrorist attack on September 11, 2001. Most of us have an I remember where I was story from that day of watching the planes crash into buildings and the horror we all felt. The world changed that day. Nearly 3,000 people died in New York City, Washington, D.C., and in Shanksville, Pennsylvania. To commemorate the day, several West Virginia public broadcasting staffers contributed to this audio postcard sitting there alone looking at images on the TV and and listening to what was going on and just you know, filled with terror and the emotion of what had happened and also disbelief, just not believing that this could happen in America. But we sat around the radio in the office and listened for updates. And then I tried to call my ex-wife in Baltimore. I was worried about my kids. Of course, I couldn't get through. The phone lines were jammed up with people like me calling family and friends or whatever. I worried a lot. I didn't hear anything from my ex until maybe a day or so later. I think she might have sent me an email just to let me know things were okay, you know, sort of. She was scared. It was like that everywhere, I think. We were all scared and wondering what was going to happen next. Being a kid from West Virginia, my only assumption was that a coal mine or power plant must be on fire. 
I ran downstairs to ask my best friend's mom what was happening, and she sat us down with bowls of cereal to try to explain. She said some very bad people had done some very bad things and hurt people in a place called New York City. It would take months and years for my child brain to comprehend the tragedy. I remember when the death toll was released and wondering how to quantify 3,000 people. Lives lost. On the crystal clear day of September 11, 2001, I was hardly on the front lines of the nation's pain and sorrow, yet I still felt it. I was a 22-year-old journalism student at the University of Kentucky. Because of a late-night shift on my part-time retail job, I didn't even know what had happened until I found out why my midday class was canceled. I did, however, worry instantly about my 16-year-old sister. Melanie was a page in the House of Representatives in Washington. On an ordinary Tuesday, she would have been at her page school in the Library of Congress before dawn, and then by mid-morning performing her regular duties across the street at the Capitol. One of them was raising a U.S. flag above the House chamber. I never thought my sister, whose life was probably saved by the passengers and crew of Flight 93, would face a breast cancer diagnosis at age 32 and with a young child. I never thought we'd lose her to that cancer at 34, leaving her daughter and the rest of us to move forward in a world we never thought we'd have to contemplate. Yes, 9-11 changed all of us who were old enough to remember. We learned to conceive what we could not conceive, and that we should never take anything for granted. I do vividly remember seeing the first plane hit the tower, and, you know, like everyone, just wondering what how could that happen? How could that happen? And so um, continued watching. And then after the second plane hit, I remember um, just getting really emotional and calling my mother, because <laughs> that's what we do, right? We call our mom and say, what's going on? Is this the end of the world? The Pentagon is a beautiful memorial, especially in the evening, the way it's lit and the flags waving and just the hush in the air. The Ground Zero Memorial is much the same way. It feels like holy ground. It feels like an instant wave of reverence washes over you because you know what it represents. You know the lives lost. You know the, the terror that those people felt and that all of us felt. It's something that I hope we never do forget. I remember my flight touched down in Amsterdam, and as I walked through the terminal of a familiar airport, everything suddenly seemed different. People were different. That sense of dread and unknowing hitting the world. Standing in line to board the KLM flight to Detroit, I remember security at the gate was at an all-time high. There was a sense of collective consciousness. Everyone was numb. Confused, but on high alert, looking sideways at their fellow passengers with an abnormal suspicion. We were accompanied by air marshals for the trip home. Landing in America, well, that was when I realized the world had really changed and travel would never be the same again. But more than that, so many people who met horrific deaths at the hands of people who hate. A memory one wants to forget, but should never forget. It, it really was such an inflection point in, in all of our lives, and especially in the D.C. area, um, you know, very soon after that, we had just security scare after security scare um, from the anthrax attacks to the D.C. sniper. And it just was several years of very heightened um, concern, very heightened, uh, you know, uh, attention to security as the war on terror developed and, and all those things came to be. 
but even to this day, you know, the the security that we go through at airports and the military and pseudo-military presence that we see on public transportation, all of that is a result of what happened that day. I was attending college at Moorhead State University, and as I walked down campus toward my morning class, I quickly realized something was wrong. Everyone was in a hushed rush or a state of confusion as we were all ushered back to the dorms. It was announced that all classes were canceled for the rest of the day, but it wasn't until I made it back to my room that I saw what had happened. I will never forget the horrific images on the news. My three roommates and I took turns calling our parents to check in and to confirm what we were seeing on the 24-inch television screen was an actual reality. The world was forever changed. In the end, I think it was important to recognize that it wasn't a sense of patriotism or rah-rah America that I have to go off and fight this war. I enlisted before the war started, but I think that moment, those hours in the morning of September 11, 2001, hardened my focus overall into the, we're not alone, we're all one people, what happens three states away impacts me here at home. So on 9-11, I grew up. I wasn't just a 26-year-old college student dropout over and over again before I finally graduated. I was somebody who was joining a purpose that was bigger than himself. While 9-11 created a lot of fog and confusion and fear in the world at large, I think for me, it provided focus and direction. And while I wish that day never happened, I think that it was a moment in our history where we can look upon it and go, what have you done since? As opposed to what would you have done instead? That was Annie Thomas, Bill Lynch, Emily Rice, Christy Morey, Curtis Tate, Eric Douglas, Caroline McGregor, Chris Schultz, Maggie Holly, and Chris Barnhart. That's it for West Virginia Week. Thanks for joining us, and we'll see you back here next week. As always, you can see these stories and more at wvpublic.org. I'm Eric Douglas.